Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad. And I'm Marcus Thomas. And we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap. Philip's journey started in the mid to late 90s when Philip got a job through a temp agency as an assistant in the film department at the British Council and got access to loads of short films. So around 97 and 98, he and his mate Tim set up a film club where they intended to curate quality films rather than just having them being open access. They were showing shorts by filmmakers at the time who were starting out like many of our audience and just like we were, uh, filmmakers like Carol Morley and Andrea Arnold. And she was coming up and she just made Wasp, which actually won the Oscar uh, early in the 2000s. And back then, there was no film freeway or Vimeo links. I'm guessing they were probably just posting out VHS. So if you don't know what VHS is, Google it. But it was pretty cool. Um, and this film club it took place in alternative spaces at the time. It wasn't in the cinema. It was in theatre rooms, club spaces. So this film club became more and more successful year on year. So Philip then left his job at the British Film Council and in 2003 he co-founded London Short Film Festival with Kate Taylor under its original moniker Halloween Short Film Festival, which I believe was just a name that wasn't given much thought at the time because the festival was actually run in January, not at Halloween, and wasn't a horror film festival. Regardless, the Halloween Short Film Festival was a success year after year and built a reputation and a following. And around 2008, they changed the name to London Short Film Festival. Philp has also previously programmed for East End Film Festival, Cork Film Festival, Latitude and Curzon Soho. Welcome to the director's take, Philip Ilson. Hi, thanks. That was a good intro. I think most of it was um, was true. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we could we could have anyone who's kind of as knowledgeable about film festivals as you, so it would be great to get your insight. And I guess in the very first instance, very basic level for everyone, Philip, what are film festivals? Um, yeah, that's a good good question. I think film festivals in 2023 are incredibly important, probably more so. Uh, I suppose also the slight difference from now till back then is that there's a lot more film festivals around. Uh, they seem to be springing up everywhere and all over the place. And, you know, some of those festivals are maybe not as good as... Um, other festivals um and that's quite a um minefield i suppose for specifically for filmmakers who are entering knowing which films film festivals to, festivals to enter so going back to this idea of a film festival i think it's important because it gets the work out there uh and in a way film festivals are getting much bigger audiences than than just regular sort of screenings in cinemas because you know we all know that cinemas are struggling a bit you know, they were struggling before COVID and they're even struggling even more now. But a lot of films fall really, um, you know, into the wilderness once they get, get released. Whereas I think at film festivals, there's always buzz a buzz around a film um, with Q&As attached, with, you know, cast and crew attached. And, you know, it becomes more of a something that people can go and experience and be, be part of. Um, so I think that... Um, Film festivals offer a lot more, you know, I mean, certainly for London Short Film Festival, we don't just show the short films that get selected, you know, we're showing retrospectives, we have special events, we have industry programs, you know, we even cross over into sort of music and club nights and 
a lot of film festivals are doing that kind of thing, like Flat Papping, Flat Pack Film Festival in Birmingham, you know, is doing some amazing stuff, you know, just beyond just showing films in the cinema. So that's really exciting. It's like a, a festival, I suppose, you know, uh, a celebration. And I think if people, audiences can really connect to that, they can be part of something. Um, so, so with the festival, like, it's quite a big undertaking to, did you kind of just fall into it and kind of like underestimated the work that went into it in, and just kind of just carried on going once once it kind of like evolved from the film club? Is it one of those situations? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, right place, right time back in the back in the 90s. You know, the festival we started into, you know, sort of planned in 2003. That's how the festival began. And in terms of screening stuff, yeah, it was easy. We just used to use, I mean, the first few nights that we did as the Halloween Society, we were literally, you know, in rooms above pubs and, you know, you, you kind of put a sheet on the wall and um, we rented a, a video projector and a VHS player. Even if you think back to that time with festivals, people would be sending their VHSs out to festivals. You know, doing the film nights have led to a regular screening slot at the ICA, which was um, a venue that many of your listeners may know down in um, in central London with a couple of cinemas and a bar and a live music space. The head of cinema at that point down at the ICA said, why don't you do some screenings in the, in the cinema here, some short films? And that then became the basis for... That was only like in 2003, she said that and we did a couple of screenings and then it was like, hey, why don't we start start a film festival? And me and Kate didn't really know what we were doing. And obviously we just put on four days, had some access to some short films, put a couple of gigs on, came round to the following year and like, oh, well, let's do it again. And that's sort of started the ball rolling. And then 20 years later, you know, we're still at the ICA putting on a film festival. Well, obviously it's... um grown significantly over that that time what made you choose to build a festival around short format rather than long form i mean yeah this is sort of follows on from what i was saying about when we started the club i mean you know us visiting exploding cinema you know i knew nothing about short film i didn't you know i didn't know it was even a a concept the idea of short film so going to this film night where people brought in their films to show, you know, that was quite eye-opening. So I think we kind of thought, hey, we could do this. We didn't think anyone else was showing short films. I mean, you know, there obviously were festivals at that time and before that time that did show short films. And obviously there's a whole history of short film that goes back to the birth of cinema, you know, in a way the first ever short, the first ever films were short before someone decided that, you know, a film should be 90 minutes or whatever. I think that was why we started the short film night and why that then became popular. A lot of these nights were quite successful with, you know, students, with with people making low-budget films. Uh, and it felt very alternative to when we did find out about things like the BFI London Film Festival that did show short films at the time. And there was another festival in London at that time as well called the BBC British Short Film Festival that I gather was funded by the BBC and that was something much more traditional as a short film festival that would um, screen in, in cinemas and then I suppose also when we started the festival in 2003 um, there was that Rushy's Soho Shorts so Rushy's is a post-production house and they started a short film festival around about the same time but it was a much more conventional in a cinema I think they used the Curzon Soho 
why short film and not features? I think it was because that was what was around at the time. And also I have worked for those other festivals like East End Film Festival and another festival in Jersey where we were screening features and it's a totally different ball game, you know, running a festival that's screening features. You're dealing with sales agents, distributors, um, you know, many of those want fees for you screening their films uh, with, with shorts, you know, you're, you're basically dealing with the person that made the film, you know, uh, and they're really excited to screen the film as part, as part of an event or as part of a festival. So yeah, features is a whole whole different ball game for festivals. You know, if you did the short film club in in the late nineties, and then when that technology came out, did you see a difference in the type of films that were being made? Maybe in the early two thousands, there were more. Jump. I think there's always been jumps in technology um, for filmmakers. You know, obviously, you know, in the last few years, the whole shooting on your phone has um, become much more of a thing. You can literally, you know, make something that can work on a screen in a massive cinema that's shot on a iphone but i don't know at the end of the day it's not really about the technology it's about you know whether the film's um good or not you know and it doesn't matter if it costs nothing to make and was shot in an afternoon on the cheapest technology or if it was you know a proper 35 mil kind of film shoot at the end of the day it's it's whether the film the finished product so yeah, and I think that's always been my um, ethos. We're looking at the finished film. Um, and in terms of there being more films, I mean, a good question. There's there's always been lots of short films. Uh, I think as the festivals become more well-known, we obviously get a lot more than we did in the early days. But, you know, certainly over the last few years, we've been getting sort of between four and 5,000. I guess, like, with the change in technology... Um, it's more accessible to to everyone. Where I guess early on it might be like you're saying you have rushes kind of doing their own thing and BBC doing their own thing and they might have their own sort of like agendas to push with like or they might have like vested interest in these festivals whereas I guess if there's more work and it's kind of more away from the establishments then it can be probably more open to to more people to showcase their work. That's a good point actually, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah I suppose those companies did support well they did run their own festivals because yeah it was a way of showcasing i mean certainly with rushes it always felt that the festival was sort of an advert for what rushes could do as a post-production house but that was what was exciting i think going back to that period in the 90s was very much like this is away from the establishment even back then it was like exploding cinema were a kind of they were kind of grew out of a bunch like an anarchist squat i think in brixton where they used to put on these sort of chill out spaces in these sort of early to early nineties raves where they would just show films in a room. Um, so exploding cinema very much grew out of that. So they had this whole ethos of anti-funding, anti-establishment, even with their events, uh, which kind of meant that a lot of the films they showed were terrible. And that's kind of continued to today. Cause I've been to a couple of exploding cinemas recently over the last couple of years. And, it's like, oh my God, the films are still as bad as they used to be. It must be really interesting to see the way the world is changing through the art that gets made. And with that, do you see trends yearly in the work that gets gets submitted? And if so, what do those shifts look like? And does it usually correlate with what's happening in the world? Is there like a lag or? Yeah, you know, something like a coming of age theme is something that's been there since I've been programming short films. You always know that there's going to be a whole bunch of 
coming of age films, which I suppose also, you know, sort of translates to feature films as well. There's, uh, I suppose what's um, come out over the last few years is the diversity of the filmmakers. We see films from so many different voices now, from women's voices, people of color, queer voices, and that's definitely something over the last six or seven years, which is amazing that that happens now that we see so many such a variety of films which maybe back in the day we didn't you know for want of a better way of putting it everyone was a bloke and everyone was white <laughs> and so seeing these new voices coming through has been really exciting so that's definitely something that's that's happened over the last certainly over the last decade or more recent and can i and can i say it just interject for a second and just commend you all on you know, the fact that you've got a really diverse program team so that they can, you know, someone that's going to understand the voice of that filmmaker. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not the ultimate person that sort of makes the final decision on the films at London Short Film Festival now. I mean, back in the day, you know, I certainly when I was running the film club, I made all the decisions on what films were being shown. And yeah, sort of starting the festival with, with Kate, she was very much wanting to see more women's voices as part of the festival. So that was in the very early days. We always championed, you know, seeing a lot of short films being made by women. And then you see, you know, how many feature films were coming out that week. There was like zero, you know, for the whole of the first half of that year, there were zero women directed feature films. But that's obviously changed things. So, yeah, I think having that makeup of the team is really important. I mean, one of the things you missed out in the intro was that I was, until this year, I've been the short film programmer at the BFI London Film Festival. Um, initially, when I started that, it was just me and this other guy. And about eight years ago, there was obviously a decision to kind of make the team bigger, but also diversify the team. So um, I ended up staying on and then we, I had a whole bunch of people with me to sort of act as pre-selectors who then became co-programmers. What what sort of measures are in place to guard against sort of unconscious bias? Because I know like having a diverse team helps, but I'll be intrigued to know like um, if you've got a sense of that or like in reflection, did you get a sense that that's the way the industry was at a certain point when that shift has occurred? I don't know if we have anything in place for unconscious bias beyond the fact that it's uh, we're all aware of, you know, I'm certainly aware of when looking at films, who's made the film, who's in the film, I mean, I did go on an unconscious bias course that Biffa set up a few about a year or two ago, and it felt like it was more a course that was for uh, corporate banks beyond, yeah, having that diverse team in place. I think uh, and being aware of, of those other voices that are coming through. I don't think, yeah, I think that's kind of something that we we have. If that answers your question, I guess the other part of it was just about historically whether you kind of like whether there was any recognition that that occurred, or whether it was a case of there was just less in the in the talent pool to choose from because it was less accessible. It's kind of it's quite a funny story, but also it's quite telling. When I in one of the early years that I was programming at London at the BFI London Film Festival, I did select a, a film by a, a female black filmmaker. Um, as one of the in, within the shorts program, and it was really weird because the festival—I don't know if it was the festival—I don't really know who, who organised it, but she had a film crew following her around, um, kind of like documenting her experience of being at a film festival, which I thought was quite weird at the time. 
that that someone felt it was uh, such a rarity that it needed documenting. It wasn't her that documented it. It was I don't know for some website or something. Anyway, um, obviously now you know we have many uh, filmmakers of color across the number we have done over the last few years at the BFI Film Festival. But yeah, looking back at the history of cinema, and it's something we've also done at the London Short Film Festival. It's interesting to see that there were those filmmakers there back in the day, you know, and there are archives and organizations that do document that, like, I mean, most famously Black Audio Film Collective, who were, you know, set up in the 70s and 80s, uh, working with black filmmakers, and a lot of those films are available through BFI archive, and... It is mad when you think about it, that I, I, I discovered that as a bit of a treasure trove on the BFI, on BFI Player, all these films that were, you know, they were so rich in culture, but you're right, they were hidden. Yeah. One of my favourite short films, it's not actually that short, it's about 45 minutes. I did this thing for the BFI Sight and Sound Critics Poll. It was set up in the 1950s to, you know, get critics to vote for the best films of all time because Citizen Kane had been the number one film since the film poll had been started in the 1950s. And 10 years ago, it got knocked off the top spot by um, Alfred Hitchcock Vertigo. Um, so this year, or rather last year, it was 10 years on and they did the film poll again. But basically, when I did it 10 years ago, because it was like it was great to be asked, I just did my 10 feature films that were important to me when I discovered cinema. Doing it last year, I asked if I could do short films. They said, yeah, that's fine. But one of the other films I put in was this early 70s film called Tinder's Film, which you can watch on London Screen Archives. But it was amazing. It was like so low budget, but then just made with local kids. But this was actually a fiction uh, about uh, uh, these kids trying to attempt a bank robbery and it even had a police it had a chase in it as well it was like but it was like the energy on the film is incredible it's like so yeah it's such a um incredibly low budget but a really passionate film i've actually shown that film a couple of times at some events in london short film festival because it's always a good one to showcase if you get the chance so yeah those films were there but you're right they're kind of hidden and just uh, to follow that up with your film knowledge and the amount of short films you would have seen of your lifetime, in your opinion, what makes a good one? It's a hard question to answer and you never really know what, you know, a good film until you, you see it, if that makes sense. It's hard to know what you're looking for, you know, and with the thousands and thousands of short films out there, you know, subject matter is pretty limited because there's probably a film made on, on most things. Don't try and make something that, you want you think should be made so you can get into the festival off the back of the sight and the sound thing i did last year i decided to do a much bigger list of about 200 films i just looked through old brochures from the festivals and old flyers from the halloween society days uh, to try and find a definitive list of really strong short films and then i did a search online and about 70 percent of them were easy to find you know, because obviously most of those films are out of their festival life now. So, you know, some of the older ones are on YouTube. Quite a lot are on Vimeo. Is that list with its links available anywhere? Not yet. <laughs> I do want to talk to my colleague Charlotte about doing something with it and trying to set... So I mean, it's just time and money. If we did something with that list on the site, we'd have to sort of plan ahead a bit rather than just dump it on the site without much fanfare. It needs a little bit of work done on it as well. It'd be quite good to get links for all the films somehow. So yeah, my list was trying to sort of be a kind of definitive list from 
obviously there's a lot more recent films on the list because I've seen a lot more uh, films over the last 20 years than, yeah, than films from historical films because they're harder to see or you tend to only see them at special events, special screenings and whatever. And yeah, so, but yeah, it is a list I would like to do something with, but it's a bit of a work in progress. <laughs> we had so many listeners questions and I think we'll dig straight into that to uncover the myths about festivals and our very first question I won't say it's who it's from but it's from a producer and they said my question is about film length do you have a better chance with a shorter film more generally what are the challenges when it comes to film length as it pertains to shorts and selecting them to be programmed as a producer it can feel a it can feel a bit prescriptive to tell a director to keep their films short and at times it feels anecdotal do you take the chance to try to be the exception to the rule, or is there some science behind keeping it shorter? I mean, every festival has different rules. So a lot of festivals have shorter running limits. BFI is 40 minutes and London Short Film Festival is 45 minutes. Showing a film that's 45 minutes long is gonna be a rarity. It has happened on a few occasions over the last 20 years, but it's pretty rare. So I wouldn't recommend filmmakers to make films that are 45 minutes longer than the ones that I'm thinking of. I mean a more sort of documentary artists kind of work rather than 45 minute dramas, which I think would be really tough to pull off. In terms of the definitive, the best length, I mean, yeah, it is an eternal question. I mean, if you're making a short film drama, I'd say anything between eight minutes to 22 minutes. If you're sort of getting to the 25 minute mark, 30 minute mark, it's going to start being something extra special. You know, you've got to be pretty confident that your film holds up for that for that length and that's the so kind of problem with some film school some of the film school um graduation films that they're just too long people just don't know where to edit they want to get everything in and really showcase you know what they can do technically so the films start ending up being you know more about that showcasing of the work of their technical ability rather than the work being particularly good or interesting so yeah but it is a question that filmmakers always ask and I mean on a purely on a practical level you know programs are approximately 90 minutes long a 30 minute film is going to take up quite a big chunk of that program so again it has to be something pretty pretty strong to for that to happen but it does happen you know we do show films of 30 minutes quite regularly but I think yeah you just got to have that confidence to have that length but also to be aware that festivals might sort of balk a bit at those kind of lengths because I saw the um the, the London Film Festival programme. Within each one, yeah, they're around 90 minutes, but there's only like one film within it, which is like 20, 22 minutes or something like that. Is it one of those scenarios where, say, yeah, like, yeah, you've got yeah. this particular programme for this slate of short films. If you've got two or three which are good and kind of similar themes, is it then it's literally just a straight up conversation about which one of these longer films will we put in? Pretty much so, yeah. I mean, and that's what's bad. I mean... London Short Film Festival, we have a lot more programs. Um, obviously, there's more opportunity to screen more films, but the London, but the BFI Festival was always tough because, you know, we're limited on to what we can do. And the, since COVID, the last couple of years, they, you know, they limited it to six programs, I think it was. So you're always going to get films that you love that just won't fit into the festival. And that gets harder at London Short Film Festival because even though we show a lot more films with, with 5,000 submissions, even now we're kind of finding films that we, we kind of like that, and, that ultimately don't end up in the festival. But that's really hard for filmmakers because they're never going to know that. And if you tell them, they might be even more kind of 
like, oh, thanks. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I wanted to know that I was nearly in the festival. It kind of makes me feel even worse. So yeah, I think that's a problem that that longer films are harder to place when you've only got limited space. But you know, sometimes you have to be honest with with yourself as a programmer and say, no, I'm going to put this in. This is gonna this is gonna work, even though it's a bit longer. Because you touched on the point about uh, film school grad films as well, um, of which I am one. But I I kind of understand like there's you can feel it in the room when films are going on too long but i think just generally on that point um i think at the film school you make like three films right so like your first and second one that you don't really have much budget to do anything very ambitious um so you maybe do something which is around like 10 to 15 minutes and then with this you suddenly get like seven to eight days to shoot and more money and you're kind of got one eye on the industry of like that in between point which is between shorts and directing long form so it's like i've got the money to make something which can showcase i can direct tv or i can make something which is going to be more like festival friendly so i think people choose to kind of do the ambition route like even for better or for worse i think it's basically like they take the swing because um it's it might be the last guaranteed opportunity to make something of that budget level uh (laughs) for at least a few years i totally get that yeah I'm I'm not just kind of trying to defend the film school people, but I guess I'm I'm talking about that gap between shorts and long form. Um because I, I think there's a lot of people there's lots of stuff for shorts and there's there's obviously like the pathway for features and long form, but that in betweeny bit, I'm keen to get your perspective on that and how festivals fit in on that yeah i mean i 100 percent agree with you that, that certainly no not naming any any schools in particular but i totally <laughs> think that you know they're purely you know training people to be in the industry which is obviously totally fine because everyone needs to work i have nothing against those kind of grad films that are showcasing on a big scale what the filmmaker can do but you know you very rarely see those films going into festivals outside of perhaps some student festivals. Well, the student Oscars take a lot of high-end, glossy film school films. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's a filmmaker who made a really good short for her first year film a few years back at one of the big schools. It was just two people in a room talking, but it was so powerful. It was really moving. And I remember her grad film was like 40 minutes long and it just didn't work. It was way overblown and too long but i know for a fact Mm. that she's directing tv now i mean i was going to say not mentioning any schools particularly but you know i think i can mention nfts when you go to their screenings you get a big showcase of all the work that the grads have done over the last however long you know working on this netflix series working on james bond and that's totally fine people need to work on this those productions it's important it's the commercial world it's where there's money and then other filmmakers i know to filmmakers for want of a better word that have made a number of low budget features that um, you know and in some instances got quite cult followings they really struggled to kind of get money to make another project you know their films don't really make any money you know they kind of do do okay they're not sort of breaking box office records and and in some cases losing money you know because film festivals fit within the directing ecosystem in terms of the pathway of it but there's kind of a limit and i don't even think it's necessarily a festival's thing to fix but i guess if there's a shorter length or gives you a better chance getting to festivals and you kind of need festivals to be elevated up so you might 
you might complete the festival route by getting into the big ones. Great. It's hard to then get the TV job because you still might have only made a 12 minute short and you still haven't proven you can do long form. Do you know what I mean? Like there's that big old. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to it's hard to capitalize on it to to kind of show a commissioner or someone that's going to hire you, they can mitigate the risk off the piece of work that you've done. That's only twelve minutes. Yeah, because long form is going to be longer, isn't it? Um, but yet it seems to be that that not not saying it's an optimum length, but twelve minutes. What are you going to really show in that other than sustaining tone? Of course, you can do gripping work, but twelve minutes is a bit of a conundrum for directors and filmmakers. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and it's also what do you what do you want a festival? A successful festival life where you're showing a lot of festivals and maybe winning a few awards with something really kind of, for want of a better word, slightly more experimental and obscure. Or do you want to go in and start making money working yeah. on bigger productions? Because I, I guess like case in point, I, I'm, it's not to shoot them down. I can't remember who the filmmaker is, but there's a short film called Honesty, which I thought was brilliant. I saw it at Cambridge and I think it got nominated for a BIFA maybe even longlisted for a BAFTA as well. I know the film, yeah. Yeah, it did really well. Like, I think it's great. Like, it's probably one of my favourite short films that I saw um, at the festival that I went to. But it's one character in one room and, like, there's probably, like, three or four cuts in it. Do you know what I mean? And it's, like, obviously there's, like, a few other bits. Like, it's done well yeah. festival-wise, but that doesn't showcase that someone could then go and direct TV. So it's, like, where, where do they go from there unless someone takes a leap? Um, unless the ecosystem somehow yeah. creates something for that in-betweeny step to help develop people. Because as you said, like when people have done longer work, it's either too saggy, too long, doesn't quite land, like it's not as tight. It's because it's that's a whole different skill is to sustain character, sustain story over a longer period of time. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm not sure, maybe it's the job of some festivals, but I, I don't want this to sound harsh, but... Um, it's. I don't think it's the job of the London Short Film Festival to sort of, for want of a better word, get get people working in the industry. Yeah, <laughs> just fix the industry, please. Fix everything. You know, it's we're obviously you know we're on the radar of, of people that are looking to commission work and they're looking at the filmmakers that we're showing. But I also think that we know our audience. You know, the st the stuff that they want to see. You know, watch intelligent, interesting work that I'm not going to deny it. But we show a lot of sort of much more experimental work within the for want of a better expression to use you know and in a way i've said this before actually in some talks that maybe short films should always be experimental in some way um because it's about trying new things as a filmmaker mm. trying to push some boundaries whether that's successful or not you know i think um yeah i mean obviously a festival that would be showing work that was more along the lines of what film schools would be producing yeah probably that would be a different kind of festival you know and it's interesting with sort of london film school you know they've got such a wide variety of work that comes out of london film school i mean they make so many films something like the nfts you only get a sort of obviously you've got these different departments documentary animation fiction and all those other departments, whereas London Film School just seems to be a generic kind of film course. And I, yeah, I'm really it's like this graduation screenings goes on for going on going for like the full day. I mean, I know the NFTS has the sort of over a number of days, but you know, you go to the fiction mm. program and it's just an afternoon, or it's you know the animation is just an hour or so. Um, but then the London Film School, you've got such a wide variety of work. I mean, some of the 
work like Filipiniana, which they did a couple of years ago, which got into Berlinale shorts, which is an amazing Philippines director shot back in Manila, really powerful. It's quite long as well. It's half an hour, but it's also a little bit experimental in its style, which is why, you know, those festivals like Berlinale, you know, competition shorts, you know, they, they're definitely going for films that are a bit more sort of outside of the kind of beginning, mm -hmm. middle and end drama, you know, they're sort of trying out filmmakers that are sort of, again, pushing those boundaries in terms of what short film is. So yeah, something like London Film School does produce some really interesting work. Obviously, for, I'm talking from the perspective of a filmmaker now. For filmmakers, you know, if you want to get signed, agents are going to sign basically momentum, right? And momentum is, I guess, translated to things like if you get, you know, selections at big places. And yeah, you are right. It's not the job of London Short Film Festival to be uh, getting people jobs, but it's the job of the filmmaker to try and get into these so that they can create some sort of a a portfolio of work that is recognised by reputable film festivals so that they can, yeah. on their shop front, show that to be like, look, I've been selected by, I've got this stamp, stamp of authentication from several film festivals, I must be good, can I have a conversation? And I think that that's, that's what it is. Because one thing I admire about about you, you know, you do do a lot of talks, you do get out there. And I remember when um, I first started, I can't remember when it was, but I remember going to one of your early talks, it might have been back in 17, 18 when I first met you, but and you were talking about um, you put me onto a short by Rob Savage called Dawn of the Death. Yeah. He's London short filmmaker, founder. He just mentioned that I'm going to go and watch that film. So what I'm saying is, is that what you say does carry weight. Really? And the London short film festival Laurel carries weight for a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. At the last festival, we did a opening night where we showed feature films by directors that had made, you know, that had screened shorts at London Short Film Festival. And we had a bit of a relationship with uh, and that was off the back of doing it five years before when we did it on the 15th anniversary. So for the 15th anniversary, we had quite a big pool of um, directors to showcase um, that had made features. Um, and the idea was to get them all down as well. Um, but then doing it again five years later, I was quite impressed that we had to sort of be quite selective because there were so many that had made features so and I actually got a couple of emails from filmmakers when they found out that this screening was happening that we were screening these short films by filmmakers that had made features that they were a bit unhappy not to be included but obviously it's a 19 minute program and you can kind of limit what you can show so you know we wanted to make it a good good interesting selection uh, you know and it's nice that those filmmakers we did screen their early work whether it's sort of Claire Oakley or Dion Edwards or Thomas Hardiman who's Medusa Deluxe has just come out um I mean he's interesting because he's from much more of a um most of his work has been sort of promos uh he's never really he made a couple of very very experimental short films one of which we'd shown called Radical Hardcore um but he'd come up through a much different route through directing promos, which a lot of filmmakers do, do, and then they move into features. But I don't know if you've seen Medusa Deluxe yet, um, but it, it's quite an interesting watch. It's some, certainly something quite different to what else is out there. Um, I haven't seen Pretty Red Dress yet, the uh, Dion's film, which has also just been released. Um, 
but her earlier shorts on the film London shorts definitely, you know, showcased someone that was, you know, doing really interesting stuff. They were much more conventional in terms of drama, um, but, you know, really strong work. So, yeah, um, yeah, you're right. I think people do are looking at what I, I suppose, you know, yeah, with the BFI festival, there's so less, so many more, so, so much less shorts. So you only had a limited amount of films to, to actually, you know, check out what, what's being made. And obviously even less British short filmmakers because the programs were mostly mixed international and British. Whereas with London short film festival, obviously we're showing a lot more shorts. And one of the things we do at London Short Film Festival is have these kind of crazy, kind of low budget programs, which are really good fun, where we can show some work that's really kind of out there and a bit strange and a bit weird, even though it might not be ultimately um, successful in what it does. It's it's still something that's worth showing as part of one of those programs, you know, um, to sort of think a bit outside the box. And those programs are always really popular um, with audiences. Brilliant. Uh, on to our next question. What is preventing film festivals from sharing submission assessments as feedback? Even simple standardised anonymised marking cards. The lack of transparency is an enormous blocker to the progress of early career filmmakers who are a gigantic contributor to festivals' revenue. They are stakeholders in and the core attraction of film festivals. Even rudimentary feedback would represent a return on their investment currently denied to the vast majority of the film community. You can imagine the filmmakers pretty angry about this, and I totally get that. We have had talks about this before. I mean, it comes up a lot. I don't really know what to say. It's hard to know how to... Um, I mean, there is actually a guy that's trying to set up a thing um, where film festivals do give feedback. I think he was working with Biffa and with Raindance on this feedback idea. I mean, it's a lot of work. None of us are being paid very much to do this, you know, and that's what I think hopefully filmmakers don't think, that we're all just going out for big meals and expensive holidays on their yeah. on their money. Hopefully they don't think that. I mean, we really, I mean, I'm going to be honest and say that, you know, London Short Film Festival and other festivals in the UK really struggle. You know, the funding is is limited. Uh, and yes, uh, a lot of the reason we can carry on is because of um, the submissions fees that, that people pay. I know a lot of film festivals would use pre-selectors who work as volunteers. And we used to do that. You know, all our pre-selectors were volunteers. But, you know, we've changed that over the last few years to sort of make sure that everyone gets paid. Doing specific feedback for every single film, I'd, you know, when you've got thousands of films, it's just you would have to employ people, you would have, I don't know, it's really hard to even think how you would set that up. And as I said, there is a guy that is looking into sort of trying to get festivals to do this. And I have had a conversation with him. And if we all of a sudden get massive amount of funding to do something like this, I can see that it would be useful. But then on the flip side of that, you know, filmmakers probably wouldn't want to see the comments on the spreadsheets that when I read what other pre-selectors have written you can be pretty brutal on on some of these i totally it's a totally um valid question but i haven't really got an answer because yeah i know filmmakers are paying all this money they're getting zero feedback does that answer the question it does but i just wanted to just follow back with that speaks to a, a filmmaker's 
vulnerability in that. Obviously, they've, it's not just the financial side of it, but the fact that they've poured so much of their life into a film and then they pay whatever it is, 40, 50 quid or dollars or whatever it is, and then it goes into a void and then all you get is like a no. And I'll tell you how important like even the smallest bit of feedback is to as a filmmaker. My film, I was fortunate that my film got selected into the London Short Film Festival back in 2022. And I remember having a really brief, or it might have been Shireen that had, the, my producer Shireen Ali had a really brief conversation with you. And you said just a couple of words that were really helpful. And you said, great, um, but it, it's, it can, I can see how it can be hard to place your film because it's a musical, it's a drama, and it's not either, but it's kind of both. And even that little bit of feedback that you gave, because it comes from knowledge, you know that that you that you just knew that. I was like, you know, that makes sense. Why it might not get it might not get selected here, it might not get selected there. So it becomes reassuring for the vulnerable filmmaker. Do you get what I mean? That's why I think people would want even the smallest level of feedback, so that they don't have to think to themselves, "I've not heard anything back." Is it because my film is completely shite? What was the film again that you had in the festival? It's called Expiation. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think maybe this is something we need to... I mean, you know, festivals do speak to each other. I'm part of a um, group called um, the Film Festival Federation, which sounds pretty... sounds like Star Trek <laughs> or something. Um, That's quite, yeah. We had a meeting last week. I don't really know. It was all a bit weird, to be honest. It was most... It's international short film festivals. But I think everyone's sort of quite busy running their own festival to kind of get too involved in um, bigger discussions. But I think maybe this is something that needs to be brought up. Some festivals don't even send any rejections. You just never know whether your film's in or not. I mean, there are some scam festivals out there, which is a whole other subject. We just take money and you just don't hear anything or, you know, 50 awards across the festival that you can apply for, you know, things like that. It's like just nonsense. Um, but yeah, the more reputable festivals, it is something that perhaps should be looked at a bit more in terms of how feedback is is sent back. And as I said, it maybe I should have another conversation with this guy. <laughs> just do like a YouTube reacts video for each one. <laughs> Put it online for everyone uh, and yeah. subsequently ruin lives. <laughs> I would say that, you know, we're not all, you know, none, none of us are in terms of and there's an element that you know i mean i'm in a privileged position as well i've only really been able to do what i you know able to do because of my you know i've always lived in london my lived in my house i grew up in you know for most of my life you know which was a decent sized house down in lewisham you know the flat that i lived in in that house is where my nan lived when i was growing up and after she passed away i just moved into that part of the house you know and it's a house that my parents you know, owned, they're not rich people. They had a building merchant business in Catford, you know, <laughs> so they're not exactly, you know, but they did well with their business. And, you know, that's kind of how I've managed to sort of do what I wanted to do with my life, which I know is, yeah, really. But at the same time, you know, I'm not, you know, I need to earn money as well. And this is, it's quite hard. And, and you know, I'm, be honest and you know working for the bfi london film festival all those years you know this is a festival that does have money but you know the actual fees that you know we got paid as programmers isn't isn't a great deal it's hardly anything it's like pocket money um i mean that's no secret because when they advertise the roles you know it's on the website how much they're paying as i said we do pay everybody but it's not you know it's not 
a massive amount is what we can afford, but at least it's something rather than just relying on people doing volunteer. And, you know, even within the festival itself, we do have volunteers at the festival, but traditionally the, the sort of venue manager at each of the venues that kind of represents the festival has also been a volunteer role, but the last couple of years we've made that an hourly rate role as well you know just because they're doing a little bit more work than what the sort of general volunteers are doing i'm not sure why we all do that really yeah. so it's always a struggle and yeah so i do get arguments from both the filmmaker's side and from from people that work at festivals side as well this is another interesting one do you think that festivals should be allowed to accept films that didn't come through the general submission process? And if so, do you think festivals should show the percentage split of films selected from open submissions and ones handpicked through relationships, etc.? Right, yeah, this is a very good question because this is where a lot of festivals work in very different ways. Mm. And I can guarantee you that the London Short Film Festival and when I worked on the BFI London Film Festival that 100% of films came through submission Shamir said that if I saw a film at a festival elsewhere we would call it in if it was a film that I think is interesting and that is something that we want to program I'm yeah and even with filmmakers we know you know they're still going to submit through the submissions other festivals may do it differently and they may work more on relationships I wouldn't really trust those festivals and we've had lots of problems in the past where we haven't selected a film from a filmmaker whose previous work was shown and they've not been very happy about it you know it's like you always show my films so i would say london short film festival is quite honest on that front it's purely about the work that comes in but i know that filmmakers probably think that it's also a lot to do with who you know there's no harm in networking and meeting people that run festivals and meeting programmers and it sort of puts people on the radar a bit if you meet someone mm. but you know the work's got to be good uh there's no point in in doing that and then expecting your film to be screened just because you know you've met someone but you know other festivals may uh, that's what they i don't know it's yeah but i'd say that mm -hmm. open submission is really important because it's where you see the new work the interesting work and you want to be surprised when you're watching open submission you want to discover new people people might be applying from all over the country as well and so like you might not have any relationship with them full stop and they might not they might have just made something yeah. people local. So, yeah. Yeah. And also we're looking at international work as well. So we get a lot of international submissions, you know, um, where we just wouldn't know the people. So, yeah, but I, you know, but maybe other festivals do it differently and, you know, they want to build relationships. Like when you're out and about, Philip, right, do you not think that? And if someone approaches you, like even at a place, do you think, oh God, what is this fucking question going to be? What does this person want? Uh, are they going to be salty because they've not? I've not selected their because obviously they don't know. They're going to be like, "That's Philip Wilson. He runs London Short Film Festival. He did not fucking select any of my films." Do you ever think like I need to be wearing a bulletproof vest? I've not mentioned that uh, you've not selected one of my films yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as I said, it's not me. But I, I understand. I understand the whole process. It's fine. Um. <laughs> I mean, I have had problems before where someone said, oh, I didn't get into the festival. I'm like, you can get into the festival. I, I think a filmmaker I saw at a festival, I loved his film. And I said, oh, you, have you thought about one short film festival? And he's like, well, I entered it last June. It didn't get in. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so films do fall through the cracks. Again, every festival does it differently. Some festivals do this whole thing where at least two people must see the film. 
this means more people watching, more money. The person who first watches it says, no, it's out. You know, it doesn't get a second watch. What I do do, any familiar names, and it's got a no on it by the person that's first watched it, I will kind of double check. And that sort of also goes back a bit to the earlier question about, you know, building a relationship and only selecting films from people you know. But obviously, I'm going to look at the film to see what the film's like. It doesn't mean I'm going to sort of, oh, that person selected, we must put their film in. That person submitted, we must put their film in. You you know, you just want to see why it was rejected or if it had a good reason for it being rejected. So, yeah, no, I've never really had any major problems with, with people. I mean, yeah, people have come up to me and said, oh, you know, uh, you haven't selected my film or I was on um, that marketplace thing for Aesthetica for a couple of years I don't know if you've been up to that festival but they do a marketplace yeah yeah. when Aesthetica happens it's usually literally about a week or two before that we've informed all the filmmakers whether they're in or not so me being on that desk was just a whole day of people coming up to me and going oh London Short Film Festival we didn't get in <laughs> and or Oh, London Short Film Festival, we got in. It's like, yeah. there's not much I can say other than great. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So it was quite funny. Yeah, I had a couple of nasty emails, mm. you know, but nothing terrible. Good. Yeah, it's why it's important as a filmmaker to to not put too much pressure on any one thing, whether that's one script, one festival, like one film, like you've got to have multiple things going at the same time. So when one of these things come, it's not a crushing blow. It's like, cool what's next it's it's one of those situations yeah yeah i can see that god i remember years ago selecting this short for london film festival and then i met the filmmaker it was his first short and i said you know i really love it it's great great film i said where else are you screening and he's like nowhere i said oh right well did you enter to any other festival he said no i don't know anything about festivals mm. he said i just had this short film i thought oh i'm in london there's a london film festival i will submit yeah he kind of submitted, didn't enter any mm. other festivals and got in. Wow. I mean, he did go on. He he actually directs in TV now. He, I think he followed it up with like a children's film, which was really long. It was like 35 minutes short for children. And um, we didn't select it, but it did end up doing quite a lot of festivals that have children's sections. So he obviously thought how he's going to, you know, kind of develop his career. We better fire through these. We've got quite a few. So, not all filmmakers will have the same resources budget available to them, and that will affect production value. How is that kind of thing being evaluated? How do you, you, we, they stop that from gatekeeping filmmakers from different backgrounds? And I think what it means is, if, for example, there's an NFTS grad short that's got um, that's far superior in budget to say something that's just been shot on a phone and someone's wowed by the production value of that, is there some sort of approach to how, you know, it's like, okay, this is this is a grad film, so we will look at these separate, and then these are not. Is there, is there a way? Yeah, I mean, again, this is sort of the answer I'm going to keep giving, that every festival does this differently. But from my angle, you know, we don't look at budgets. I mean, we have this section called Low Budget Mayhem, which is for lower budget films, although we never really check what the budgets are. You can really, you can kind of tell if it's a low budget film. Um, and also people can enter for a small fee if the film's under five minutes, which we kind of set up purely just so that people making shorter shorts won't have to pay the same price as someone making a 20 minute short. Um, and we get a lot of the low budget films out of that sort of, um, that submissions, um, that way of people submitting. So no, I don't think, you know, 
again, it's purely to do with, you know, the film as a finished piece of work. It doesn't really matter whether it's got no money spent on it or whether it's a big budget. You know, we're going to show bigger budget films if there's something that work as a as a piece of filmmaking and it's a strong piece of filmmaking, but we wouldn't show it just because it's got a big budget. This listener was wondering whether submitting a cover letter alongside your application holds any sway in whether your film gets selected or not. Um, if there's any particular incidences where a cover letter would be beneficial when submitting. Um, I mean, this dates back to the sort of sending in DVDs and VHSs, you know, that people would send through like whole press packs and amazingly designed covers for their DVD or for their VHS tape. You know, at the end of the day, it's like what's on the actual tape or in case now what's on the link. Other festivals may read every single cover letter. I, you know, we don't tell pre-selectors that they must read the cover letter if, if it's, if it's there, it's like, it's kind of more useful to have stuff to read if a film is really strong and you want to find out a bit more about it. And you think, oh, they've sent in a cover letter. I'll read that. Um, I don't think it would make, you know, a different, and, you know, going again, going back to the BFI LFF days, because they don't use the submissions portal, they do it through themselves. We, we would just literally send, you know, a spreadsheet with a bunch of links on to watch, you know, with a, excel sheet with a column with the synopsis in so at least you can see what the film is about although back in the day when i used to do it early on it was dvds and back then the dvds would just get taken out of the envelopes and all thrown in a box and then they'd just give you a big box of dvds and some of them wouldn't have the you know they wouldn't have the supporting documentation and or not it'd just be what you know put the dvd in and start watching so yeah the thing but you know again there's a lot of films coming in. We, you know, haven't got time to read everything, and it's very much about what's on the short film itself. But I wouldn't say, you know, don't do it. Other, I mean, again, you know, other festivals might demand that you need that. You know, you have to send a cover letter because that's something in their rulings. Yeah, is that the same with things like do posters and stills and director's statement and all that sort of stuff? Does that all help, or is that just kind of fluff? I mean, it's helpful after the film's been selected, certainly with stills. It's always good to have good stills um, so that they can look good in the in a brochure. You know, a lot of a lot of short film festivals don't have a room unless, you know, some short film festivals have really thick brochures, certainly within Europe, but a lot of the festivals within the UK don't have a still for every single film listed in each programme. So you're looking for the really good stills that can be used for marketing for the festival or for, be used for the brochure. So it's always good to have a still. And again, things like director biographies are always interesting to read when you find someone that's made something really good. You think, oh, who's this person? You know, um, yeah. So yeah, I hope that answers. It does. It does. And then um, the other thing which people have asked about is the submission deadlines. Does it make a massive difference other than price, whether you do like the early bird, the mid or like late submissions? Have you already kind of like put together your programs or like have an idea of what the theme's going to be and stuff at that point? Yeah, good to hear about that. I mean, I'm not a believer in doing anything before the submission deadline is finished. But again, it's sort of saying that other festivals may do so. They may have ideas of what their film programs will be before the submission deadlines. But we have quite a long gap between the end of submission deadline and actually 
finishing the the final program, I think of a couple of months. So it really enables the programmers to, um, you know, make sure that everything's been seen. And obviously we have ideas as we're going on, what films are really strong. That's the whole point. You know, we work, um, on the spreadsheets and share films and, you know, and we, and also we have London short film festival has a couple of sort of returning sort of themes every year, like a midnight movies or a comedy program. So you're kind of highlighting films that could fit those programs, those genre programs. But I don't think for us personally, it would matter whether the film came on the last day or whether it was the first day. It's, um, but other festivals may think differently and may prefer to take work, you know, that sent in early on. If I have actually heard festivals say that, that they would prefer you know, films were sent earlier rather than later because there's more chance of them getting in if they're sent earlier. So, yeah, you would have to sort of research with each festival. Yeah, so this one here, um, I think you, you you did kind of answer this before, but I'm going to answer it anyway. I'll ask it anyway. Does LSFF have an agenda like BFI where filmmakers in the industry have put money in, are selected? For example, a film for Bat Short is, surprise, surprise, premiered at LFF with a film that is ready to go into the industry. Basically, I think they're saying that are people sort of like backed as, um, you know, if, if, if they're on a trajectory and they're ready to go and it's like, let's, let's back that film because we're jumping onto the momentum of that of that filmmaker. Yeah, like sometimes there's, uh, yeah, there's like the short before the feature, right? Do you know what I mean? Like there's some filmmakers, they get into a development with film for or something. They're like, we'll do, want you to do a short and then the feature. I mean, no, because we don't really have any conversation with anyone within that industry. Um, you know, with the BFI festival, all the films were submitted. We didn't have any, um, had absolutely no, um, you know, we were told we could select what we want, you know, and yeah, some of those films may have been BFI or film for backed, but again, we're not checking on who's funded every single film i mean it's interesting with bfi network because they make so many films there's no way that all those films are going to be selected so yeah no it wouldn't make any difference personally to me where where the film was funded from um again not mentioning any names there was a filmmaker that i know quite well who produced a short that she submitted to london film festival and we selected it and when i spoke to her afterwards she said, I'd kind of looked at what you guys were selecting over the last few years. And I thought, I'm going to make a film just to get into London Film Festival. Oh, wow. And it worked. <laughs> yeah, and it worked. But I mean, she was someone I knew. But again, it wasn't someone I knew that, that I would therefore select her film. But but yeah, some people do do that prediction. Like that film years ago that won the Oscar, The Phone Call. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was quite a long time ago now. British short. I spoke to him and he said that they kind of made it to win an Oscar, which is a really weird thing to say. But he said when we developed it, we kind of had Oscar in mind and then it did win. <laughs> so it can work for some people. Was, that the Sally Haw- was it Sally Hawkins, that one? Yeah, because I think they had it written and had to wait for a year for Sally Hawkins to be available because they weren't going to make it without Sally Hawkins. Jim Broadbent's in it as well. Although, having said that, I don't actually know what he's done since. So maybe winning an Oscar wasn't... That was it. He retired. That, that bigger. Yeah, yeah. Bigger thing. Yeah, <laughs> Cool. I think that covers the questions. Uh, the, the last thing we, we'd want to just ask is about the future of film festivals, really. What do you think 
the future of it is looking like. Obviously, COVID has pushed everyone a bit quicker into the online space. Um, do you see festivals kind of leaning more into that in the future? And yeah, how do you kind of see that fitting into the ecosystem as we move forward? So that's, yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because one of the things that happened during COVID is that every festival moved online, including London Short Film Festival. And I'll be honest and say we didn't have a very successful COVID festival. And I know a lot of festivals that went online really quickly got really good audiences for want of a better way of putting it we were having some internal problems anyway with how the festival was being run there were some issues that had to be sorted but covid kind of stopped that restructuring of the festival so the online festival that we did was really not good it was really badly organized and we got really small audiences but having said that the festivals that were successful, I did think this is something that we can develop for the future, that we would become, as they call it, hybrid. And, and those festivals that I spoke to once things opened up that did go hybrid um, were pretty negative about the online part of the festival, saying that it was just a complete waste of money, like we hardly had anyone watching. And that really disappointed me because I thought this was going to be like uh, the way forward. So January 2022... The plan was to be hybrid, but as it got closer, just with budgets and workload, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, we couldn't really do it. We had to put all our eggs in one basket and be fully physical. Yeah, I don't know. It's something that I would like to revisit. I think that the hybrid idea is a really good idea. And maybe when things are settled down a bit and people are used to things being open again, maybe we could have a relook at this idea of having some of the stuff online. nugget of the week me and ours consume so much content <laughs> around like directing craft and things like that and so we kind of want to throw back out to the audience what's inspired us and and hopefully inspire them as well so we'd like to ask you philip Wilson, what has inspired you this week i mean i i mean i also i'm a big you know always been massively into music i was away at a film festival over the weekend and it was quite a long flight and i just picked up this book last week about if people remember what cassettes were that the music press, um, New Musical Express, NME, who were a music paper in the 80s, released a cassette of uh, new bands. It was called C86. And this book is about kind of where are they now? The C86 bands, one of them are global megastars, Primal Scream. Uh, the majority have all disappeared without a trace. So the book was just kind of, you know, looking at what the careers of those people had done since... And it was, it's been an interesting read just because you're sort of fated as a, a kind of, this is the best new band or whatever, you know, whether that's going to sort of continue or how your life continues after that. Uh, some of the bands are still playing, but admittedly more in more sort of nostalgia kind of uh, ways. But I don't know, I just thought it was quite an inspiring read about that whole DIY culture sort of independent culture and that definitely crosses over into film and also I was thinking when I was reading the book it'd be quite good to do something like that for that scene that I talked about that late 90s film club to see what some of those other people are doing from that time yeah I always like that thing of you know where are they now it's quite interesting so yeah that that was an inspiring read love that and and how about you Oz we we're actually a bit in sync weren't we with these it's a documentary that was recorded on Sylvester Stallone's channel about him re-editing uh, Rocky IV, and he's, he's re-edited it over the pandemic. 
and it's now called Rocky vs. Drago. I think it came out in 2021. But it's not actually the film that, that the interesting bit. It's this documentary that Sylvester Stallone talks about throughout it. He's in the edit every day. There's a camera person with him. And he's just fascinating how he just talks about his life, about his choices as someone who shot that in his 40s and now he's in his 70s and why his choices were wrong and caving into sort of like forms at the time. And he's a very, very intelligent man. Like I'm quite hard pressed to think of another filmmaker that's actually done three franchises that are still running in now. And that would be Rocky, which has evolved into Creed, Expendables, a new one's coming out. And then Rambo, I think they just did Rambo recently. Um, and that was all from, you know, Sylvester Stallone. So it's... Um, a documentary that's on, on his YouTube channel. It's about an hour and a half long, and it is fascinating for filmmakers to really think about. He's a very, very smart guy as a filmmaker. And uh, continuing the 80s theme, uh, mine is about Sly, uh, Sly Stallone's rival in the 80s, and I guess that's based on Arnold Schwarzenegger. So it was the Netflix documentary series. Uh, it's just called Arnold, and I needed something really light to watch. I think oh, you sent me that documentary, and I was actually going to watch that. And then I... I like I turned on my TV and because Netflix yeah. was already on, it then just started playing the trailer for Arnold and then just rolled into it and then I ended up watching the whole thing. There's only three episodes, but it, it breaks down literally him coming from like a really small village in or like a small town in Austria and like his background and then just becoming this megastar. Like the because weightlifting at that point and especially there it wasn't a big thing, so he just had to see someone I think playing Hercules. And then it inspired him to be like, oh, I, I want to do that as well. And then just started crafting his body like on his own <laughs> to become this absolute monster. Um, and he did it at the age of 22. And then from then it was like, cool, I've, I'm Mr. Olympia. I'm Mr. Universe at this age. What else can I do? And then that's when he broke into acting. And then after he com basically completed acting, being like the highest grossing star of the 80s, it was then, it was then like, cool how do I get into politics? So it was like, he was always looking for another thing to conquer. Um, so it kind of digs into that and his sort of mentality, which is in in sort of a, a world which we're kind of, you need to be very resilient to, to achieve anything. I think there's a lot in there which can be very inspiring, so. I think his first um, film that he was actually in was a documentary, wasn't it? Pumping Iron, which was a late 70s documentary about bodybuilding. And that was where people first sort of saw him and heard his name yeah so i think he was like he was trying to break into it ahead of that but he wasn't really being taken seriously or it was just bad stuff because he had this awkward accent but he was like working on himself a lot and then he kind of figured out that community uh building building a community around himself which was around like um bodybuilding that's what his strength was and so he kind of did that and then that's where pumping iron sort of came from and that really like because he was such a, a star of that documentary and it kind of blew up at Cannes then it suddenly was his personality was attached to him um, and then he became Arnold off the back of it and it was yeah it wasn't planned it was just something it was him just not giving up really it was yeah it's really really cool I'm going to check that out definitely this concludes the episode next week we're going to be joined by someone else I'm sure so follow socials to find out who we'll be having on and so if anyone does happen to be listening uh, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com and we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large, and we'll do our best to tell you. We want to shape this as a resource for you, so do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the Directors Take Podcast, and also on Twitter, which is at Directors Take. Philip, are you on uh, any socials? I mean, I'm on personally on Facebook and um, and Instagram. I am on Twitter, but I haven't used it for years. 
the festival is on all the socials yeah so if you go to the website shortfilms.org.uk you can sign up to the newsletter and also it's probably got links to the socials on there as well beyond that if you can leave us a review on whichever platform you get your podcast from so until next time keep learning keep failing and keep the faith 